Something that I say a lot, that you've heard me say in the past, that's important today as we get into, um, or as we continue this series on Revelation, is this truth, that the Bible didn't just drop out of the sky. Now, I know that sounds, um, maybe that sounds a little trite or sounds a little strange for some people, but it's something that is so important for us to understand especially as we try to learn from Scripture, understand Scripture, peel back the layers on Scripture so we can see what's going on. The Bible didn't just drop out of the sky. It was written by people over thousands of years as they experienced God amid varying circumstances and different cultures. The Bible takes on different genres because of this. Genres of poetry, genres of history, and genres of narrative. So, so let's stop for a minute. Let's reset. Let's make sure that we have this clarity and this understanding. Sometimes I like to think about as people would go into their grandma's house or something, they would have a Bible that would be sitting on, um, on like a table or something, a huge Bible and in the front, you know, it would have all those places where people record things like uh, weddings or family members, things like that. But they were always huge, right? And always opened up. Or at the front of a sanctuary in a church, there was always this large Bible kind of opened up. And I think in some ways what it's caused us to do is have this separation from Scripture where we lose the understanding of the people who took part in writing, of the people whose lives were being taken and, and, and put into this book. And what we have to do sometimes is we have to stop, we have to pause, we have to understand what's going on because it's going to be, if we keep the Bible at kind of that arm's length, it's hard to learn from it because we don't see what's happening with it, how it was written, and why the people were writing, and what that has to do with us today. But when we start to understand that the Bible was written by people over thousands of years, people who experienced God, the intersection of like their life and their faith, the intersection of the things that were going on in their lives as it intersected with the things of God, all of a sudden, this reality where the Bible is over here and over here begins to mesh together. We begin to see this integration of our lives and the spiritual reality intersecting. And we see that in the words and the pages of Scripture. Because these aren't simply stories about people. These are stories of people who had experiences, incredible experiences with God. But also ask questions that we ask face the same realities that we face in culture and, and in the, the circumstances of their lives. They also face some of the same um, temptations, some of the same things about what it means to be human. And so there's this journey taking place in Scripture, the same journey that takes place for you and I as we try to navigate this thing we call life filled with joy and happiness right alongside with suffering and pain. And then there's this truth and this reality of God who loves us, desires for us to be a part of his kingdom, calling us into that reality, living side by side with what we're doing today. That is the power of scripture that then when we open it up, we look at these stories and we can see these stories and peel back the layers, realize the context in which people were writing See the questions they were asking, the, the circumstances they were facing. Learn from what they experienced and then apply that to our own lives and say, what can we learn from what they learned? And how does that apply to our journey 
as we navigate the integration of life and faith as well. And what's fascinating is just like all kinds of genres of things that we see this in scripture as well. We see people as they integrate this thing of life and faith creating poetry. As they integrated their life and their faith, they, they put that together in history and in narrative. And then what we call apocalyptic literature. Now we've talked about this, and this is what we find in the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic literature is a form of writing, and I'm going to quote something, that is meant to sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis. It creates hope by offering a scathing critique of the oppressors, passionate exhortations to defiance, and unfailing confidence in God's ultimate defeat of the present evil. Now, I love that sentence. I love that language. It's academic, but it's so rich with meaning. So I want to talk about it again and then explain it a little bit more. That this apocalyptic literature, what we're studying in the book of Revelation, is meant to sustain the people of God. It's a form of genre. In the times of crisis, that people would write something like this. And here's what it's meant to do. It's meant to create hope. It's meant to offer a critique of people oppressing or persecuting them. It is a passionate exhortation to defy the reality around them. And then unfailing confidence in God's ultimate defeat of the present evil. This is an academic way of saying that this book, Revelation, that we're reading, is a mix of political satire protest language, and a call to have an alternative vision of the world. Now listen to those three things as they combine again. It is a form, a mix of political satire, of protest language, and a call to have an alternative vision of the world. Sometimes Revelation is this book that's maybe hard to read or easy to ignore because it's filled with symbols and metaphors. Uh, we look at it and we question. We say, man, I don't even know how to begin to understand that. Or maybe we've seen some wild, crazy interpretations from books and movies. And, and it, it can make it complicated. It can make it uh, feel a little away from us. But there's something cool about this, that we're able to read this book we're able to peel back these layers, see the context of what's going on, and realize these were very real people who wrote this book in a time of crisis and used this book to give each other hope and to have faith that amid this crisis that they were facing, pain and suffering they were experiencing, they could have hope in God. Now, a man named John, the author of this book, wrote this during the time the church was under incredible persecution. He had confessed that Jesus was Lord and that the empire or Caesar was not Lord. This is a big deal. I know it sounds strange today, but at that time, there was a saying, Caesar is Lord. The reality that the empire was not just this political, incredible megastructure, but there was a faith reality kind of built into it. And so when he went around and Christians went around in the first century and said, Jesus is Lord, that was treasonous. It was idolatrous. It, it, it was the kind of thing that could get people killed. And it did. People suffered intense persecution because they said Jesus is Lord. And anytime they said that or anytime they believed that, the reality was that the people around them knew that they meant Caesar in the empire is not their Lord. So because of this commitment to Jesus, because of the defiance to the Roman Empire, John was arrested. He was sent to a prison island called Patmos, 
which is still around. You can still see it there today. And from there, he wrote this book called Revelation in the genre of this apocalyptic literature, an allegory meant to show Christians the absurdity of giving allegiance to Rome instead of to Jesus. Now, last week, we focused on the concept of the royal edict. Again, there's allegory, there's metaphor. John takes these things around them, these cultural identifiers, and he gives them new meaning. This is where we find kind of the secret meaning take place because he takes very real things around him and creates this hidden meaning from them or this kind of uh, flip it around the other direction sort of thing happening here. And so he does this with a royal edict. The emperor would stand. He would, before a gathered crowd, he would proclaim uh, good and bad things that he saw among governors and citizens, uh, the people of the cities that were represented. And in the first three chapters, John parodied these imperial edicts with seven letters written to seven letters, uh, seven letters written to seven churches. And if you didn't hear that sermon last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and hear it. But in these letters, followers of Jesus were warned of the risk of developing a lukewarm faith. One focused more on greed and personal satisfaction instead of sacrifice and service to God. And then John closed this out with these words. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this was familiar language. This was the language of the royal edict. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And what it meant when said by Caesar... And then what it means here is that you don't just hear the words. You do something about what is said to you. So again, realize what's happening here. John is kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudging, saying we're all familiar with Caesar. And the way that he stands up and gives these royal edicts, the, the way that he uh, proclaims the good and the bad about the different cities and governors and the things they're doing, with a wink, wink, and a nudge, nudge, as he begins this book, he makes a parody of those edicts. And he says, here's what Jesus would say to these seven churches. Here's what Jesus has to say to Christians. Here's the good and the bad. And in kind of a, kind of a way to, to take it all into account, he says the worst thing is this reality of a lukewarm faith. Being tempted by the power of empire being beat down by the reality of persecution and crisis, losing hope in the eternal reality of God. He says what is tempting to happen for Christians is that in times of crisis, in times where everything seems to be falling apart, that there is a temptation rather than having hope to lose hope. Rather than looking towards Jesus, to lose their focus and focus in on greed and self-reliance and satisfaction. He says, no, 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 that's the temptation. Don't go that direction. Here's the warning. Follow Jesus relentlessly during this time. And whoever has ears, let them hear. So don't just hear this hope. Do something about it. Don't just hear the call to have a focus on Jesus. Focus in on Jesus. At the center of this book is the idea that the love affair with the way of the empire is what competes for the heart of the faithful. Hear that again. 
The love affair with the way of empire is what competes for the heart of the faithful. I said it last week and I wrote it down again, so I make sure to say it again. The same lines are drawn for every generation, including you and me. Any empire, whether that empire is an actual country with borders or merely the borders you create as you carve out your own life, gives us the temptation to have a love affair with that reality rather than with Jesus. So the question we have to ask then is if you're creating your own kingdom or choosing to be a part of what God is doing in this world, are you trying to create your own empire, your own reality? Or are you putting hope in God? Now, from here, John turns a corner. And he turns a corner into two of the most beautifully written chapters in all of Scripture. The songs that we've sung today and the song we're going to sing at the close today, um, it, the lyrics come from the words of these chapters. They're absolutely beautiful. Some of the most incredibly written language you'll find in Scripture. And what we find here, you'll find echoed throughout the Bible as people use this language, but it kind of comes to this incredible crescendo here. So here's what I want to do. I want to read these two chapters. And then I just kind of want to talk about each one, where I think they're at, what they're asking us, and where they're taking us. Let's start with Revelation chapter 4. As John turns the corner from these seven letters to these seven churches, asks them to have ears to hear, and then paints an incredible picture for them. He says, after, the, I lo- after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the ones who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, and the third had a face like a man. The fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, this passage is full of biblical language and imagery. It's also strange. That is okay. I want us, when we read something like this, to not gloss over or not assume that we're supposed to know what's happening or not be kind of shocked by the imagery and the pictures. 
It's okay to lean into the reality that this is strange and weird language. It reminds us that the author here is speaking in metaphor, in allegory. It reminds us of the purpose of what he's trying to accomplish, which is to help people in a reality of persecution have hope. That what they're facing is not the only reality at play. So listen to this. Check this out. The first century readers of this book, the people it was written to, would have actually heard something very familiar here. So what we hear as strange, what we hear as metaphor, what we hear as weird, would have had a hint of familiarity to them. And what our job, what we have to accomplish here is try to understand that and see that. What John was doing, or what John did with the parody of the royal edicts, John does here again with this throne room. See, an emperor or king would be surrounded by advisors and counselors. And this would have reminded John readers, even us, of the central point of power with a leader surrounded by advisors and counselors. And in this case, that central leader was Caesar. So listen to this. When you hear this, you hear this throne room. And you hear about these people surrounding the throne room, these creatures, these 24 elders surrounding it. And John gives us this incredible picture of this throne room with all of this crazy imagery. And people would have heard that and they would have understood and they would have imagined the throne rooms that they knew about. Caesar sitting on his throne, surrounded by all of these people. And they would create this imagery of this incredible uh, thing happening within Rome and with Caesar as he gave his edicts and his royal proclamations as he, he served as kind of a god before them. And John parodies that. He says, no, 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 here's this throne room. And seated on this throne. Now Caesar was the center of power and persecution that they faced. They were also seduced, as I said before, by his own overwhelming power and the temptation to give up their fate, their faith in light of the hopelessness that they were experiencing. But remember that John is using this book and the symbol and metaphor to give an alternative view of the world around them. So what we're invited here to do, we're invited with John's readers to see that the powers of this world are parodies, imitation copies of the ruler of heaven and earth. John is inviting us to see that all power, whether the empires and leaders of the day or our own power and control we assume we have pales in comparison to the greatness and the goodness of God. So let me try to explain that again real quick. Is that in this imagery that we see here of this throne room, John is inviting people to see that yes, there is a throne room that exists in Rome. Yes, there are powers that have all this control over this world. And he said, but all of that is just an imitation copy. All of it is simply a parody of the true, real throne room of God. And then he goes on in chapter 5, and he gives us some more language as he begins to talk about the, how those things pale in comparison and greatness to the goodness of God. And he tells us why. Listen to this. He says in chapter 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? 
but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Now again, it's important to remember that John at this point is not trying to paint a picture of things to come. Remember, John is painting a picture of an alternative vision of the reality around the people who read this. That during, during a time of incredible persecution, during a time of crisis, during a time that they could have easily given up their faith and lost hope in the reality of God, John says, no, 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 no. Don't lose sight of that. Don't be tempted by what you see around this world to believe that there's no God. Don't be tempted by what you're seeing around you to lose your faith and lose your hope in who God is. He's not painting a future reality for here. John is trying to give his readers and gives us a behind the scenes. Now, I'm a sci-fi nerd. And there's a way that I like to think about this. One of the common concepts in science fiction, something that even science considers today, is that there are multiple dimensions happening in one space. Now, just stick with me for a minute before you check out and think, okay, he's going too sci-fi, too crazy here. What is he talking about? Science today has this concept and this idea that there are these multiple dimensions of space happening around us. And I can get this and kind of understand this because this is this thing that we kind of see in sci-fi writing and language like that. And that's what John is using here, is this similar kind of language. We saw it in Revelation 4 verse 1 at the beginning of what we read here today. John walks through a door. Listen to this again. He said, after, I, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And what sometimes we tend to do is we tend to think of this as kind of this far-off door, something way out, and he goes up into heaven. But instead, the better understanding here is to realize what he's saying is there's this door kind of leading to a behind-the-scenes reality that he's seen. And John walks through that door and he gives us an invitation to follow him into seeing our world, this world, in a new way. Now, we've always said that heaven and earth are not separated by time or space. 
we've made that conversation a lot that what we've always tried to help people understand and to see is that the reality of heaven is around us all of the time. The kingdom of God is present in this reality today. And that's what John is talking about. We talk about heaven as a present reality, taking serious Jesus' prayer that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what John is bringing to light for us here. John is saying that heaven, this throne room, this reality, is before us, beside us, beside us, and within us. That this reality intersects our own as we choose to see it, to believe in it, to live the way of heaven in our world today through the language of heaven, grace and peace and love and mercy. And then through this metaphorical language, John tells us that God has been working to bring this reality to an existence. That the scroll here represents this incredible plan of God and only one is worthy of bringing that plan into our world. His name is Jesus, throughout the scripture and here referred to as the Lamb of God. So John goes on. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, at the beginning of this message, I talked about this idea that the Bible didn't just simply fall out of the sky, that it was written over thousands of years by people in varying cultures and circumstances as they experienced the intersection of life and faith. Well, a thread can be found in that scripture that points towards the Messiah towards Jesus. In Revelation, in chapters 4 and 5, John puts Jesus to the forefront. He shows that everything before pointed to Jesus and that Jesus is and was the center of it all. For many of us, we've been invited to hear about Jesus, to listen to the teaching of Jesus, to follow Jesus. But here is another invitation. This invitation is to worship Jesus, to recognize our Savior who died on the cross, rose again, brought new life into this world. So here are a couple questions that I wanted to ask you. Who or what are you choosing to worship? What is it in life that you find most worthy what is it that you give your most attention and honor? See, John, in metaphorical language, and maybe language that is strange or weird, maybe language that we look at and we say, man, I just, it just seems so odd to me. But what if we began to understand this language? To see that what John was saying is that there were these people, 
in this incredible time of crisis and persecution, who looked around and they were beginning to lose hope. They were beginning to only see the world for what it was, being crushed by the reality of their day, being tempted to give hope in things like money and power. They were being tempted to give up on their faith. And then John says, look, it is so easy to get caught up in that, to see that. He said, but there is something else taking place beneath the surface. There is something else happening behind the door, behind the curtain. He says, if you would just pull that back. He said, if you would just have an incredible spiritual imagination to see there is a God, a heavenly Father who is holy and majestic and more powerful than all of these things that you face and all of these things you're tempted to put your hope in. And he said, not only that, he said his name is Jesus. And he gave his life. And he showed us love. And he invites us to see the world in an incredible new way. And John said, he is worthy of worship. He is worthy of praise and honor and glory. John says, it's so easy to see the broken world around you and to see hopelessness. His invitation is to have an incredible spiritual imagination based in love and goodness that invites us to see a hope and a God who invites all of us into a brand new reality. So many people, ideas or empires claim to be worthy of our worship every day. But they are a sad imitation of the only one who deserves our worship, our praise, and honor. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this book that was written so long ago by a group of people who in reality weren't much different than us. We may be separated by time and by space, but God, we face so many of the same pressures and temptations and concerns and fears. God, we thank you that as John wrote, he wrote to these people amid that reality and called them to see the world in a new way, to have a vision that went beyond what they could see with their eyes and have faith in you. God, we thank you that he called them to worship of Jesus and then calls us to do the same. Father, help us to see beyond the reality that we face today, to put our hope and our trust in you, and to worship Jesus only. 
It's your name we pray today. Amen.